We begin today's study with a title, and then I will follow the title up with some remarks that will help you to understand what the objective is that we're undertaking this afternoon. The title is 12 on a Trial Trip. 12 on a Trial Trip. Now, this that we're going to be looking into this afternoon, first of all, has some correlation with what we have just recently been looking at out of 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm not going to, of course, revisit all the points that we were studying within the teachings entitled Content to be a Christian, but I do want to remind you of a particular point that we presented last Sunday in the third study under that title. It was a point that was drawn from the 13th through 16th verses of 1 Timothy chapter 6. It was the second to last subpoint, as a matter of fact, under the general topic of the lying logic of linking gain with godliness. And in those verses, Paul reminds Timothy of the fact that Jesus maintained a good confession, a good example in his tongue and in his walk. Jesus maintained a good confession before Pilate. And when we were reflecting on that idea, I raised the question, what if you gained the world but lost your tongue? And then within the consideration of that question, I brought to your attention the example of Peter in Mark chapter 8. There, Jesus is reproving Peter's prophet proposal. Indeed, it was more than a proposal, it was a polemic. Because you may remember the series of events that transpired where Peter gave his good confession about Jesus Christ being the Son of God. Things started well until... Peter went to church for a very short period of time, as it turns out, in Jesus' presence, and Jesus began to explain to him what Christianity entails when you truly live the life. And we read in Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 32, that after Jesus spoke these sayings openly, that is, he began to express fully within the hearing of his disciples, which I'm equating with going to church, just loosely, of course, but I'm seeking to help make it relevant for all of us. When Jesus began to speak these ideas fully, openly, about the cost of discipleship, which is equivalent to the cost of Christianity, well, Peter discovered he wasn't as content as he thought he might be to be a Christian, and we read that Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. And we know from other accounts that Peter begins to present an argument that this sort of experience is not befitting Jesus. It isn't befitting one who is favored of God, who has the truth, who has men's best interest in mind, injustice and persecution and hardship should not be visited upon such an individual, but he did not understand the deeper truths of the Christian faith. Thank God Christ did. And after Jesus 
excuse me, after Peter took Jesus aside to rebuke him, Jesus returned the favor, and we read in verse 33, but when Jesus had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, get thee behind me, Satan, for you're thinking about Christianity with the old man mind, the things that men savor, not the things that God understands and savors. Then Jesus expands upon this series of ideas in the latter part of the same chapter. I point you to verse 36 of Mark chapter 8. Listen carefully to the language here. Jesus says, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, whether or not it is immediately obvious to you why he then transitions into the remarks that he makes in the 38th verse, I want you to understand that there is a direct correlation between what Jesus just said in the 36th and 37th verses with what he then ends this section with in the 38th verse. I will read the 38th verse now. Jesus says, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The point that we were making last Sunday that I'm reminding you of now is that Jesus compares, he sets in opposition the heart that is focused on the description of profit, that is, the general idea that works within mankind and that all of us were oriented toward before we were saved and before we were delivered from the deceptions of the old way of thinking. Jesus says, what will it profit you, men, humankind, if you gain in various directions, let's bring it to its apex. If you were to gain the entire world, what would it profit you if you lose your soul? Fasuke, speaking about essentially yourself. If you lose yourself, if you lose inner strength, if you lose the capacity to be what God has designed you to be, what have you gained if you get everything externally, if you lose everything internally? And the 38th verse is pointing out that one of the very real manifestations of that sort of situation will be that you lose your ability to speak up for Christ. You no longer have the inner strength to confess him before men. You have sought things other than inner spiritual development. You may have gained much material goods like the Laodiceans, but you have not been attentive to growth in godliness, which has gain in this life and in the life to come. And so if your little member, as James characterizes it in James chapter 3, 
If your little member lacks the strength to confess Christ, it is because your CPU lacks the processing power of the Holy Spirit. The point being here is not that we are machines, but similar to machines, the way that our psuche, our beings function, is, is that there are input devices. Things are being typed into your life. Things are being put into your life. And there are also output devices. And one of your output devices is your tongue, is this little member that nonetheless has a very important function and manifests a great deal of strength in all sorts of directions. But if your little member, which we know is very able to speak, but if it cannot speak up for Christ, it means there's something wrong with your soul, with you. You have lost your soul. You've lost your CPU. Your central processing unit is not able to process life and values and importance well. And Jesus, you will remember with me, tells us all, for example, in Luke chapter 6 and verse 45, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart, the programming, the ideas, the value system with which his heart is working, if it isn't written according to the word of God, if somebody else has been programming your thinking in your life, then out of that heart will come forth that which is evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. These are the ideas that we were reflecting on last Sunday. I mentioned in our fellowship time to at least some of you that there was another portion of scripture that was present within my notes that buttressed and broadened our perception of how this principle works. But as I was seeking to be the letter of the Lord and glanced at the remaining notes that I was speaking from, I made the decision to forego treating that passage last Sunday. And I did so for an additional reason. After the first message on content to be a Christian, a question was raised just in fellowship time about the proper way to understand Matthew 10 and verse 23. And I said to the brother who asked me the question, as a matter of fact, that's a part of the notes and the content that I will be speaking about in these studies on content to be a Christian. Well, I never got to that, as I'm saying now. But as I reflected in responding to this brother's question, in that I had a couple of weeks since he first asked it, I decided to, rather than just give a sort of distilled understanding of that passage, I would present a bit more of a analytical approach in thinking through that text. That's in part what we're going to do this afternoon. I want to say at the outset that it will not be the case that we will deal exhaustively with the various views and the various re related ideas that one could introduce in thinking about, in particular, Matthew 10 and verse 23, 
which we will get to in time here, but I'm initially acquainting you with what the objective is today. In my view, it's a perfectly worthy objective. We are to equip the saints to understand the Word of God. Indeed, in the body ministry, things about this need were expressed so that the saints can have a prepared answer. They can be ready in their minds to defend the faith, to answer objections about various passages. I've decided in undertaking this task to approach the topic in such a way that down the road I could add to these studies, if I so desire, and end up with a fuller treatment of Matthew chapter 10. I'm letting you know right now that I have no intention at this time of getting deeply into Matthew chapter 10 and treating sort of the overall picture of what it speaks about, although we will certainly be interacting to some extent with the content and what's occurring there. I want also to say to you, and indeed also to our hearers who perhaps listen to these teachings as they come week to week, I want to encourage you in that the studies on Joseph's journey are available to take the time in the coming couple of weeks to go back and listen to those teachings for one of the reasons why I'm not going to deal more fully in Matthew chapter 10 is because it's in my heart to get back to those studies on Joseph's journey. But I gave you the title of 12 on a trial trip partly because it speaks to the broader context of what Matthew 10 is about. And it lends itself, I think, to a series of studies in which we can deal more fully with what this is all about, this 12 on a trial trip. I'm going to give you a subtitle for this study. The subtitle is A Tricky Text. A Tricky Text. Now, that's a kind of homey way of making a point. I perhaps should state the text itself, of course, is not tricky. I'm not faulting the text, but it is one of those texts that present a bit of difficulty in understanding well, and in my view, exegetes haven't often come to the right interpretation and the right sense of what Jesus is speaking about. So it even makes sense, it seems to me, in dealing with Matthew 10 in general, to pick this particular text that we will get to in the 23rd verse that is a somewhat tricky text because it really does have a bearing on how you interpret the broader scope of things that are going on. So today we will begin to lay the groundwork for that defined objective that I've just expressed to you. So 12 on a trial trip. Perhaps you've already turned to Matthew chapter 10. We're going to work through most of this chapter by dividing it up into a five-sectioned outline. And we'll begin with verse 1 and with the first section. And we will call this section the calling. Verse 1. And when Jesus had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out 
and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. And then we are given the names of the twelve apostles, which we will not read presently. Well, you begin to see, I trust, why we're calling this the twelve on a trial trip. Because Jesus calls to him twelve out of the number of his disciples. We are given their names, and that's the first thing that occurs in Matthew chapter 10. Beginning with the fifth verse, we have what we will call the commission. The fifth through the sixteenth verses entail the commission. We will read these verses completely. These twelve Jesus sent forth. Now notice he didn't send 74th. He didn't send 124th. He didn't send all believers forth. He sent these 12 forth and commanded them saying, go not into the way of the Gentiles and into, the, and into any city of the Samaritans enter ye not, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver, nor brass for your purses, nor script for your journey, neither two coats, neither shoes, nor yet staves, for the workman is worthy of his food. And into whatsoever city or town. You may hear my emphasis on the word city here. I meant to emphasize it in verse 5 as well, into the any city of the Samaritans. Back to verse 11. And into whatever city or town you shall enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and there abide till you go hence. And when you come into an house... We could even emphasize house. Pay a bit of attention to house. It's not exactly a city, but it is a place. It is a location. Give a bit of attention to that element in the passage. And when you come into an house, salute it. And if the house be worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it be not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whosoever shall not receive you nor hear your words... When you depart out of that house or city, see how the two ideas sort of work together now, shake off the dust of your feet, for verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. There's the commission. The twelve are going to be sent on a trial trip. I guess it's obvious they haven't quite yet put one foot in front of the other and actually gone out into the cities of Israel, but they have been commissioned to do so. Before they get there, Jesus presents to them, after giving them their commission, he presents to them the conflict. They are called, they are commissioned, and then they are instructed as to the conflict. 
This is found in verses 17 through 23. We will read this together. But beware of anthropon. Beware of mankind. The text, of course, says beware of men, but I want to make sure that everybody realizes it's not just males, male human beings. It's important that you sort of get this. It's a, it's a simple point, but let's just get it. It's beware of mankind. Beware of humanity. That's what constitutes the wolves among which the sheep are going. Beware of the unsaved. Beware of men, for they will vote you into office. They will be happy to promote your objectives of finding a place within the culture within which to insert Christian values. I'm not saying that the opportunity to insert Christian values is besides the point in Christianity. We are to be salt and we are to be light, but light in the midst of darkness and salt in the midst of corrosion. And just to state it sort of categorically, that kind of orientation, that eschatological framework that would argue that the Christian witness is going to gradually change the nature of the effect of sin within the countries and within the territories that the Christians find themselves as a program and as a long-standing effect, an ongoing effect, as opposed to a temporary experience that might occur through revival, that orientation is not in keeping what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 10 about the conflict. Now, maybe someone feels that, that proves that the 23rd verse that we will get to should be interpreted in a certain way that allows us to embrace an eschatology of ongoing Christianizing of the world prior to Jesus' return. But I wanted to point out here, as we're reading the text, he says, beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the civil institutions, the councils, and they will scourge you in their religious institutions, the synagogues, and ye shall be brought before governors and kings, not with a pat on the back, not as comrades or, should I say, colleagues in the political process. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony, materion, for a testimony. King James says, against them and the Gentiles. Let me just make a little correction here by first reading the Greek to you. The Greek is ace materion autois kai tois ethnosen. There is no kata, there is no language of obvious against. The King James translators may have felt that this testimony would result effectually in some manner as being against the governors and kings, and I'm not disputing that that would work out that way, but that is not what the text actually says. In other translations, I don't have one in front of me right now, but other translations I know don't use the word against. It could be in the text, is my point for reading the Greek, but it's not. It says, into or onto a witness to them and to the nations. It's the dative of to. 
But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what. Pos a t laleseta. How or what? From whence you will get the strength and what will be the content. Take no thought how or what you shall speak, for it shall be given you in that hour what you shall speak. For it is not you that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. So much for cessationism. Unless, of course, you interpret this text as having already been fulfilled, as many do, which is part of what we're going to be grappling with here in equipping the saints to understand a number of things, but one of which is to better understand this slightly tricky text that we're just about to get to in the 23rd verse of Matthew 10. It is the Spirit of your Father that speaketh in you, and the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And you shall be hated, listen to the language, of all men for my name's sake. And the section ends with this statement that has a certain depth to it, a certain austerity to it, a certain weightiness to it that is very important to sense. But he that endureth to the end shall be saved. Well, we will certainly look into these remarks more fully as the Lord allows in grappling with Matthew 10.23. But for the moment, it's enough to have stated the things that we have said. And now we can come to the tricky text itself that, of course, just emerges within all that is transpiring in Matthew chapter 10 in this idea of 12 sent on a trial trip. Matthew 10, 23, we can call the continuance. We had the calling. We had the commission. We had the conflict. The single verse, Matthew 10, 23, we will call the continuance. And thereby, I am effectively presenting to you my understanding of what this text is speaking about. But we have much more to say about it, so allow the Spirit of God to build the understanding in your hearts. Jesus goes on to say, But when they persecute you in this city, ente pole taute, in this city, with a, a demonstrative pronoun, but when they persecute you in this city, remember we talked about cities before? Flee ye to another, for verily I say unto you, you shall not have gone over the cities of Israel until the Son of Man become, or until the Son of Man comes. I'm going to give you two remarks at this moment about this text. They are simple statements, but they encapsulate what, for me, is the right understanding of this text. You might think then, if you do that, then we don't have anything else to do, right? Because if you give me the right understanding, we're done. But that's not the case. I want you to be brought into some degree of orientation to what I believe is the right understanding of this text 
right away so that as we then go and think through the various alternative ideas and build the case biblically for the substantiation of the interpretation I'm about to present to you, that you'll sort of be thinking with me, right? You'll have something to think about, an idea that you will be able to analyze and reflect on as to whether or not we are making the case without forcing the issue that this is the right way to understand what Jesus is talking about. Perhaps it's best for me to simply observe, before I say anything else, that there is a bit of trickiness to this text. Maybe it's not evident to you what the trick is, but it's the idea that Jesus says, you will have not gone to these 12, he is saying, you will have not gone through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. That sounds rather eschatological, doesn't it? Sounds like the coming of the kingdom, doesn't it? I'm not saying he's not talking about the coming of his kingdom. There's good reason why it sounds that way. And so, what's going on? Well, let me give you two remarks about this text that may seem very inadequate at the moment, but they will become more lucid to you as we develop our case. Number one, what is this text talking about? Number one, the work of the kingdom must continue until the Son of Man comes, but it will be characterized by difficulty sooner or later in all the cities of the earth. I'm going to repeat that. The work of the kingdom must continue until the Son of Man comes. Why does that need to be emphasized? Why should Jesus emphasize that point? Because of the second part of what I'm saying. This work of the kingdom that must go forward will be characterized by difficulty in every city to which it goes sooner or later. Sooner or later... In every city to which the gospel goes, there will come a point when they will persecute you and you will experience difficulty, and you must know that and understand that that will be the case so that you do not fail to endure to the end. So your courage does not flag, so that you know that this is the case and you will continue to bring this gospel until indeed the Son of Man comes. That's number one. Number two is a very critical, beautiful idea, but it sounds so simple when I state it that you might think that I'm just grappling for sentences and just arbitrarily grouping words together. Here is the second point. This gospel of the kingdom, it will start in Israel and it will end in Israel. I so much look forward to the development of that second idea, although I have to give you the caveat that we are not going to be engaging in almost any of these thoughts exhaustively. But that is perhaps never the case, actually, although you might think I attempted at times. But we will say enough, God helping us, that, that you will see the beauty of that idea. And I want to say to you that the remark that I just made there is a clear statement of my eschatological commitments. So any who are acquainted with the various eschatological views 
and have thought about this text in Matthew 10, 23, that have a broad biblical literacy will already be feeling what I'm sort of establishing here. And I suppose, uh, to state it sort of dramatically, hearers will begin to divide for or against where I'm going. The gospel of the kingdom, in a beautiful way, Jesus is making this point embedded into the wonder and the mystery of what he's saying. The gospel of the kingdom will start in Israel and it will end in Israel. And this, my dear brothers and sisters, turns out to be one of the strongest anti-replacement theological texts in the Bible. But more of that as we go on. Maybe it is proper for me to just remark that the idea of an anti-replacement theology text is the idea of a text that manifests, that demonstrates, that proves that Israel, as God's chosen people, indeed nationally as well as individually, are not set aside in perpetuity. They are not replaced by Gentiles, by even, one could say, the work of the church. And that's all there is to the future. The fact that the gospel will begin in Israel and will end in Israel and what that all means and how we will show you how the Bible speaks of that, you will see that Jesus knows exactly what he's saying. And it is a true statement. It's a beautiful, powerful statement. And it is a statement that necessarily argues against replacement theology. But then we will look here to the verses that I was going to emphasize last Sunday under the text of gaining the whole world and losing your tongue, losing your confession, your ability to get that little member to say, even under persecution, I believe in Jesus. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I serve one master. I will obey God rather than men if I must make this choice on an issue about which God has given me a clear command by which to live. I will obey God. Because in Matthew 10, in verses 28 through 33, we have the courage, the courage, the call, the commission, the conflict, the continuance, the courage. And the beauty of what we're going to see here that I was going to demonstrate last Sunday is that the same principle that Jesus spoke to the ears of Peter and the few that were with him in Caesarea Philippi, he expands to the twelve and by extension to any who are called into the Christian faith and should become witnesses of Jesus in these generations, in these times. He expands the idea. As you will see, it's the very same idea that we read a moment ago in Matthew chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. That's why you want to gain your soul, to have it strong enough that they can't kill that soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? Interesting, isn't it, by the way, that he doesn't say two eagles. There may be a sense in which the believer is like an eagle. 
But that sense is more spiritually and not in the way that they function within the eyes and the observation of the men that are around us in this phase of our Christian experience. Indeed, we are the sons of God, but it doesn't appear what we shall be. And what I'm saying is Jesus says, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be as harmless as a dove. And it is purposeful that here he brings forth the metaphor of sparrows, because we are like sparrows. We are like the little birds that nobody cares about, that are an annoyance to most people that actually like birds. We're not colorful enough. Where our song isn't beautiful enough for them, we flock together and chirp about God and faithfulness and praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. I know that's more like a parakeet, but that's what they view us as, you know. And I'm not saying that caustically, I'm just saying it's true. But Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for almost nothing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father knowing it. Isn't that encouraging, little sparrow? Not one of the believers is going to fall to the ground without your father knowing it. Then he brings it down to something even more unimpressive. The very hairs of your head are numbered. And you must believe that the hairs of Jesus' body, he is the head and those that make up his body. I'm not saying that that's what he was thinking, but there you go. One way or the other, however we feature into this metaphor, it certainly is speaking about those that are reduced and allow their lives to be relatively insignificant in the eyes of the world. There aren't the noble, the wise, the mighty, but they belong to Jesus. And we must understand these concepts. And so when Jesus sent the 12 out on a trial trip, this is the teaching and the understanding he was giving them so that they will be successful in their ministries. And I assure you that we need this same orientation to be successful in our ministries. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Isn't that wonderful? I don't want to take 666, brothers and sisters, whatever that looks like. And why would I? Why should I trade in the number that God knows that I am in his family for some general number that everyone in the world has, the number of the beast. Amen. The very hairs of your head, everyone is numbered. Fear ye not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Amen. In other words, the metaphor was intended to somehow help us reflect on our lives and our experience and equate it with sparrows. Indeed, his eyes are on the sparrow, and I know that he watches over me. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. You might not have much, but if you can confess Jesus before men, then Jesus is going to confess you before the Father and if you were previously in a situation of not having much in some measurement of the world calculations of what looks like much, I assure you, once Jesus confesses you before the Father, you will have everything your heart can desire. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father, which is in heaven. Now, I suppose you see 
how that correlates with what we looked at last Sunday in Mark chapter 8 and what I referred to at the beginning of this message, where Jesus was saying in response to Peter's prophet plan, you know what I mean? Peter had a prophet polemic. That is, you know, Jesus, you, you have to have more. You, you, you need to impress Israel and Jerusalem that you are the Messiah. I believe it's true. And, and this cannot be onto you that you get reduced to the cross of all things. And Jesus, being a better accountant than was Peter, wasn't banking on some sort of advancement in this time, but he was investing in what the Father had called him to. And he knew that ultimately I will gain the glory that the Father has prepared for me, which in his case, of course, he had before the, before the world was made. Well, back to verse 23. Shall I read it again? But when they persecute you in this city, Jesus says to the twelve, Flee ye into another, for verily I say unto you, you shall not have gone over the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. It so happens that there are other texts that are parallel to that kind of thought pattern that we just read again in Matthew 10, 23. I'm going to bring those texts to your attention. Three of them are actually very similar because they're all speaking of the same event. They're in the time frame of Jesus' transfiguration. And within that series of events, Jesus makes a remark that is recorded by the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John has no record of this remark in his gospel because, of course, his gospel is a later gospel, and he just didn't repeat everything that the synoptics had already stated. But take the remark, for example, in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 28. Allow me to read these remarks in the ESV because instead of verily, it has truly, and the familiarity of, of some of the language will help, I hope, your ears to sense a pattern. Matthew 16, verse 28. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I think you see how similar that is in thought pattern with what Matthew 10, 23 says. There are some standing here who will not taste of death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Sounds like something must have to happen with the hearers themselves that must be fulfilled within their time frame in order for this text to work sensibly. Well, I do want to bring to your attention what many people are aware of, that in, for example, Matthew 16, verse 28, the text I just read, it is the last verse of the 16th chapter, and then we move right to the 17th chapter. I will remind you that Matthew didn't originally write in chapters. So the very next thing that Matthew writes after what we read in the 28th verse is the following. Here I'm reading from the King James. We read, in after six days, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, his brother, and brings them up into a high mountain apart most likely Mount Hermon, over against the possibility of Mount Tabor. And there are reasons for that, which I'm going to forego stating presently. We'll see if we have any reason to get into that with more detail as these studies unfold. 
But Jesus brings him up into a high mountain apart and was transfigured before him. His face did shine like the sun and his raiment was white as light. I'm showing you there that there is a plausible fulfillment in at least some measure of what Jesus stated in the 28th verse of Matthew 16. And this pattern is repeated in all the synoptic accounts. In Mark chapter 9, in verse 1, we read, And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And then in the second verse of Matthew 9, the very next verse, we read here in the ESV, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And then finally in Luke's gospel, also the ninth chapter, but the 27th verse for Luke, we read, But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And then the very next verse, the 28th, goes on to say, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Well, you see, even just in reading these texts, there are various things that one, account, one encounters that one must think through. Luke, for example, says now about eight days after Mark and Matthew say, in after six days. But there's no problem there. Is eight not after six? They said after six days. They didn't know exactly when the time frame was. Whoever was informing Luke knew a little bit better about when it occurred. Or one could even say, stated the relativity of the time in different language and said, now about eight days. So, for example, if it was, in fact, at the end of the sixth day, or you could say, you know, after six days could be on the six days in some form of parlance and speech, and it would still be true. Now, about eight days. With respect to time and events that occurred years prior, if it was six days, it is about eight days. I give you that as an example of the, you know, the genuineness of the text and uh, the way that uh, these things can be reflected upon and be understood. And you see that there isn't a rigid woodenness about the biblical record. It isn't contrived, but it is inspired. When one patiently searches the scriptures and rightly divides the word of God, then you will see that there are no contradictions in the original manuscripts at a minimum. But I want to stress to you with respect to these three passages, all speaking about the events that occurred during Jesus' transfiguration, that there is a very definite remark that is made here 
that you have to have some explanation for. In Matthew's gospel, but it's effectively the same in Mark and Luke, Jesus says the following. I'm going to read it to you in the Greek. He says, Amen. Lego who mean a si tenes ton hode este katon. I read it to you so that I can then say that the repetition in these verses of truly I say to you has that amen to it. You know, amen, I, amen, or once in these texts, truly I say to you. I'll be doing more work with that ultimately, but I want to emphasize right now, when Jesus sets up a phrase, when he sets up a statement with that kind of phrase, just like the phrase I gave to you earlier when Jesus says, but he that endureth to the end, those type of statements have an expansive application. They are statements that are being stated by Jesus with an a psychological awareness of the profundity of the remark that is about to be made. And that profundity entails not just an event that could be occurring soon that has remarkable import, but as you will see with me, the profundity speaks to a principle and an idea that is applicable to the church of Jesus Christ over time. The truly I say to you is a remark for all Christians over all time, not simply a statement that is made only to those particular individuals. Now, the moderation of that comment that I just stated, and that's why I preceded my remarks with saying, when we look at the original language, we realize that there is a specificity in its initial fulfillment that is embedded in Jesus' statement. That is to say, he says, truly I say to you, there are some of the here standing, ton hoda este katon, there are some of the here standing. And he's looking at his disciples. And I just want to say right now that there is absolutely a specificity to that that is necessarily applicable to the individuals that are before him. There are some that are here standing who will not taste of death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, a clear-headed reflection on what he is saying right there will already aid one to understand that while there is a specificity to its application, there is also a limitation to its import. I'll have more to say about this as we deal with all of these ideas, but suffice it to say at the moment that the eos, the till or until, King James has till, the until is very important to observe. They will not taste death until... That is to say, they will taste death, but it won't happen until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now, it's a pretty awful eschatological position to have as one of its features that you will be alive 
and the Son of Man will come in the fullness of his kingdom, and then after that you'll die. That's not a very hope-filled eschatological position. So while I am saying it is right to see that there is a specificity to these individuals that are before Jesus in all of these remarks that necessitates we find some sort of interpretation that includes them in it or the portion of the sum of them, that there must be a legitimate interpretation of what Jesus is saying that does include those that are standing there. First, we have to cross that objective, check that box. And we can, because in every single account we have, and after a few days, Peter, James, and John saw Jesus transfigured in a foretaste, a proleptic. I'll be doing more with that word later, probably not this week, but a proleptic experience of the coming of Jesus' kingdom. It is not a full manifestation of his kingdom. It is a proleptic manifestation. It is a foretaste. It is, in some sense, you might say, typical of what the coming of the kingdom will be like. Now, the value of that observation, among other things, is to make it clear that it was not beyond Jesus to speak in such ways to state such ideas that entailed these kind of dimensions. It wasn't beyond Jesus to look at people and say, some of you are going to be, that are standing here, will have a taste of the kingdom, and yet that doesn't mean that he was saying that the fullness of the kingdom is going to come. And he well knew that, because he said you won't taste of death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. There's another verse that parallels Matthew 10, 23, that has also been seen as a tricky verse, and it is found within the Olivet Discourse, in which Jesus is speaking about the end times, the coming of the kingdom. I mean, I suppose, just to be fair to all hearers, maybe I shouldn't presuppose that he's speaking about the end time, if by end time you necessarily mean events that happen at the end of the age, at the end of temporal history, but he is certainly speaking about the coming of his kingdom, the arrival of the Son of Man. All agree with that because you can't get away from that. And the particular text I have in mind is found, for example, in Mark chapter 13 and verse 30. Listen to the way it is stated. Will it surprise you that it starts like this? Truly, I say to you, this generation, hey, Guinea haute, this generation, a demonstrative pronoun, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Wow. This generation. It seems someone might think that you worked yourself into a corner, haven't you? Because you're saying similarly to the way in which Matthew 16, 28 is working when he states some of the standing here or the here standing will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming. Do you not, for consistency's sake, have to have the same position when you get to Mark 13 and verse 30 and you observe what the Greek text says, which we must because I'm not going to work at this eisegetically. I'm not going to read into the text what I want it to say. We're going to exegete the text and let it speak for itself. 
So when Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Sounds pretty strongly like a preterist position, doesn't it? Some would argue with a broad smile, and you may enjoy your broad smile for as long as you can, but we will be getting to our own position on these matters, and we'll see if you don't have to bring those corners of your mouth a little closer to the center by the time we're through. The main purpose for the moment in acquainting you with Mark 13 and verse 30 is simply to just give you another statement of Jesus that is similar to Mark chapter 10 and verse 23. Verily I say unto you, you shall not have gone over all the cities of Israel till the Son of Man come. Truly I say to you, the 12 I'm speaking to, you shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man comes. Well, I have no dispute. I happily grant I'm with all of my brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ who read these texts and say, they're a little tricky. What exactly is he saying? And that's why we're having this teaching, is to sort out the proper answer to that. For the remainder of today's study, I will primarily be setting before you alternate interpretations to the interpretation that I believe is biblical. So first of all, let me make it clear to you that there have been a number of cynical comments from the unconverted on these sorts of texts. That won't surprise you, but it's probably good for you to know that the unconverted will read these statements in the Bible. They will seek to take advantage of the seeming perplexity that we Bible believers would find ourselves in. Take, for example, Bertrand Russell, the British intellectual. In 1927, he wrote an essay entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. In that essay, he points to Matthew 10 and verse 23, along with Matthew 16 and verse 28, as evidence that Christ, as presented in the Gospels, was, quote, not so wise as some other people have been, certainly not superlatively wise, because Christ believed that his second coming would occur before the death of the current generation. Now, Bertrand Russell, I thought I would take a moment to make a remark that always comes to my mind whenever his name features in my studies. He was married for 27 years to Elisa Pearsall Smith, who was the daughter of Robert Pearsall Smith. So far, that doesn't mean so much to many, but you're not the daughter of just a man, you're also the daughter of a woman, and the woman in this relationship was named Hannah Whithall Smith. That name will mean more to some of you, and it's just the ability to take a moment and make a couple of necessary remarks about Hannah Whithall Smith in order to help God's people to be a more discerning and safe people. Hannah Whittall Smith is known for one writing in particular, The Christian Secret of a Happy Life, which was published in 1875. Another publication that she is somewhat well known for is The God of All Comfort, which was published in 1906. Now, I am not making a case of guilt by association, but the limited nature of my remarks about Hannah Whittall Smith involve this picture 
And there is relevance to Bertrand Russell's place. I don't know exactly how that all works out, but I do know that eventually he and Alyssa divorced. Perhaps it was his doing, Bertrand Russell's doing, and not Alyssa Pearsall Smith's doing. But the wife of this man that I'm presenting to you was a family member of the Pearsall Smith family. Robert Pearsall Smith himself, I won't get into the allegations of immorality because I can bypass that, uh, at least for my purposes, because he more or less denied them. And I don't know to what degree they were researched and whether or not it was proven that the accusations of immoral behavior were true or not. He denied that whatever was thought to have been immoral was what it looked like. And that can be. I understand that that can be. But he did leave the Christian faith. He did leave the Christian faith. Now, none of this may seem so far as mitigating against the value of Hannah Whittall Smith's writings, The Christian Secret of a Happy Life. But again, for starters, it's probably useful for you to realize that within this woman's own family, her daughter married Bertrand Russell. And her husband left the Christian faith... And she, in her autobiography entitled The Unselfishness of God and How I Discovered It, published in 1903, she teaches universalism. But you wouldn't necessarily know that because in more modern editions of her autobiography, the three chapters that teach universalism are omitted. But beyond all of that, and to my point, if you read the biography of Hannah Whithall Smith by Mary Henry, you will learn of these things and a whole lot more that will put this individual in a much different light. And I would hope that it would help Christian people to be very careful about opening your heart to the message of the Christian's secret of a happy life the God of all comfort as she presents the story. I recognize that this could be a bit anachronistic or something to that effect. It could be as one born out of due time in making these remarks. I really don't know. What I do remember is that when I was a young believer, these writings were very, very popular, as were Hannah Hernard's writings, Hind's Feet on High Places, and a whole series of writings. Hannah Hernard, a British Quaker, like was Hannah Whithall Smith, and uh, Robert Pearsall Smith, they were Quakers. I'm not saying Hannah, Hannah Whittall Smith was, was uh, British, but I'm saying they were Quakers. They all eventually embraced universalism. The idea that everyone goes ultimately to be with God and there is no hell. Here's a quotation that I just pulled out of one of Hannah Hernard's writings in which she presents her commitment to universalism. I'll just read you a couple of sentences out of this. She says, Hannah Hernard, now this is not Hannah Whithall Smith, but again, I could be, you know, I could be Don Quixote here chasing windmills. That, that may well be. That's all right. The windmill's still out there. I'm not that much of a Don Quixote to think that the windmill doesn't exist. Hannah Whithall Smith, Hannah Hernard, and their trajectory or the essence of their ideas of the Christian life are no doubt still very much affecting the way people think about God. And I'm doing very little here in working through this study in addressing that matter, 
But as I stated a moment ago, the most helpful thing I have done is point out some observations and then point you to Marie Henry's biography of Hannah Whittle Smith, which I read years ago, and my eyes were illuminated in a good sense to understand, oh wow, that's quite eye-opening. Once again, that her daughter Mary Bertrand Russell, okay, you know, I'm not here to make a case out of that, that her husband... Well, I'm going to skip all those further remarks, just keep it together here, and read Hannah Hernard's remarks. I am now fully persuaded that as God is love, there can be in him no wrath, such as we conceive of wrath, or any possibility that he will condemn his own creatures to unending destruction. But I must still ask, what am I to do with all the passages of Scripture which seem to assert the very contrary. The scriptures, of course, did teach that there is a hell. Yet there are many other passages which most emphatically state that, in the end, God will completely triumph over evil. Well, maybe I should read a little bit more, so I will. What astonishing questioning this discovery led to. I discovered that there is not one single verse in the scriptures which uses the words everlasting, eternal, or forever and ever in connection with hell. That is to say, in no single verse translated in English by the word hell, referring to Gehenna, Sheol, Hades, or the pit, or the grave, is any word used which even hints that these places or conditions are endless. But there are several which definitely speak of being delivered out of hell. Therefore, hell cannot even be assumed to be endless. It must be temporary. It is clearly stated that in the end, death and hell are actually cast into the lake of fire for complete destruction. Then it is obvious that they must play some vital and important role in preparing for God's final victory and for the restitution of all things. Well, I don't know how useful perhaps it is to grapple with this in the midst of the other things that we're grappling, but if this study winds up being in some sense an effort at acquainting God's people with the need of having sound biblical exposition, and this matter is just sort of tacked on in some summarial fashion, then maybe it does have some value. I'm not going to analyze Hannah Hernard's remarks here, but I will say that they're in keeping with Hannah Whithall Smith's remarks and ideas. And yes, the Christian secret for a happy life indeed to embrace the idea that there is no eternal judgment, that there is ultimate reconciliation for all people. Well, you have been warned. A more well-known name than Bertrand Russell associated with a particular view on Matthew 10.23 is Albert Schweitzer. To characterize Albert Schweitzer would take a couple of hours, so I won't attempt that. And that's in some sense to his credit. He was an accomplished organist and uh, a physician and a philosopher and a naturalist and a humanist and a whole host of things. He won the Nobel Prize on some occasion. He wrote a very influential text entitled The Quest for the Historical Jesus in 1906, in which or out of which was developed what has come to be known as normally consistent 
eschatology. I have a text in front of me right now that is calling it thoroughgoing eschatology, and that's fine. I understand what the author is doing there with that synonym, but I'm referring to Albert Schweitzer because his interpretation of Matthew 10.23 within the framework of what I will call as well consistent eschatology is arguing that the way we must understand this text is that Jesus indeed thought that the kingdom of God would come before these 12 disciples finished their ministry among or within the cities of Israel. And when you read Matthew 10, 23, and if that's all you read, and if you aren't apt to teach and you don't study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed because you jump too soon at a suggestion in the text, then I can understand how you would come to that position, but I am primarily just presenting some of what I will call the cynical comments of the unconverted. I'm going to be quoting Schweitzer later in this study more fully, but he says, for example, in speaking about this text, this is not the quote yet, but in speaking about this text, when Jesus sends out the 12, he says, Jesus does not expect to see them back in the present age. And this is not a direct quote from Schweitzer, but the author I'm working from is summarizing his view at this point and states that for Schweitzer, he argues that the position of Christ and the thinking that Jesus was working with is that his eschatological kingdom would come before the 12, and then he quotes Schweitzer again, completed a hasty journey through the cities of Israel to announce this coming of the kingdom. And then Schweitzer goes on to argue, when Jesus realized his mistake, he concluded that the messianic woes, or what Schweitzer calls the affliction, which were necessary to bring in the kingdom, would have to be fulfilled through his own suffering. Well, I can summarize this perspective perhaps more effectively than what I was attempting to do by working through these quotations from those who have looked into this prior to myself. Schweitzer is well known for the idea that argues that Jesus had this consistent eschatological perspective by which he means that Jesus felt the kingdom was going to come in his own time, that Jesus' own ministry and presence and activity was going to bring about the favor of God and the activity of God, and God would move in deference to his Son, and the kingdom would be presented. But when this didn't seem to be happening according to Jesus' expectations and time frame, then Jesus began to try to promote it himself. And one of the ways in which he tried to promote it was to send out his disciples into all the cities of Israel and announce its coming. And he anticipated that their doing so would bring about conflict in these cities where the Pharisees and others wouldn't want to hear about this idea that Jesus is the Messiah. This 
carpenter from Nazareth, etc. And the onslaught of this opposition would, like in, for example, the days of the judges or within the Jews' experience within Goshen, their perplexity would provoke Almighty God to come to their defense and the power of the kingdom would come to rescue them. And so Matthew 10, 23, Schweitzer argues, is the proof that Jesus thought that those very 12 would experience exactly what he stated. They would go throughout the cities of Israel. They would experience persecution. And he felt that before you get through this, I know God's going to move on our behalf and the kingdom of God is going to come. And Schweitzer says, obviously, Jesus was not the impressive figure that Christians often present him as because he was wrong. And having discovered that he was wrong, he then flew into further fits of frustration. And he went to the extent of provoking opposition such that he would be arrested and even crucified. And he did so because psychologically he felt, if I put my own life at risk before Almighty God, then the Father will have to deliver me and the power of the kingdom will come. And so Schweitzer would argue, when Jesus is my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is the depths of Jesus' realization that his ideas and his plans are failing right in front of his eyes. Well, this argument that I'm giving to you has been very compelling for unbelievers, is the way to state it, otherwise known as theological instructors in the seminaries. One author by the name of F.D. Bruner makes the following remark about Schweitzer and the things that I have just been presenting to you. He says, this sentence is one of the most difficult in the New Testament, Matthew 10, 23. Albert Schweitzer and other consistent eschatological theologians use this in parallel text for the thesis of Jesus' expectation of an imminent end to history and of Jesus' subsequent disappointment, as I just explained it to you. Well, I want to give you one further remark from the unconverted critics, one further quotation, and then perhaps we will bring today's study to a conclusion for the time being. In 2003, a publishing house under the name of Truth Seeker published a book that was edited by Tim C. Leadham that was somewhat well-circulated and is entitled the book your church doesn't want you to read. And within that text, Matthew 10, verse 23, is engaged with, and the author has the following to say. Let us examine the New Testament references to the second coming. In Matthew 10, 23, Jesus addressed his 12 disciples and told them that they will, quote, not have gone over all the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. Almost 2,000 years have gone by since this statement was made, and whether or not the 12 disciples managed to travel to all the cities of Israel, one thing is certain, the Son of Man did not come. Matthew 16, 28, this author goes on to say, explicitly states that there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man come in his kingdom. It is plain to all that none of those to whom Jesus spoke these words is still alive today. Well, you're seeing that this text 
in some respects has a vulnerability to being misinterpreted. And it has been grasped by unbelievers and used as a way to undermine the integrity of Scripture and even the wisdom and prophetic understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. It would, of course, be nice, I suppose, in an ideal world to be able to present to you competing alternate views to the biblically correct view and to follow it with a full defense of the biblical position in one study. But alas, time does not allow that to occur. But that's all right. As I've often stated, no one read Paul's letter to the Romans in one consecutive sitting and grasped it all fully. One would have to read it and then go back and read it again, and refer to previous chapters to pick up the context again. And thankfully, even in their day, without the printing press and without recording equipment such as we have, they clearly had the means and made sure that they did have the means by which to study Romans or any other of the letters that Paul wrote. So the earliest believers did this, and we can as well. So we'll leave it there. How about this for just a rapid little statement? Other additional errant exegetes on this question include Johannes Weiss, Rudolf Bultmann, C.H. Dodd, and a host of others. The point being in closing that there is a wide representation of individuals coming from various eschatological orientations that view this text in a way that I do not.